Thank you for checking out the Missio Day Humble Park podcast and joining us as we join God as He makes all things new. We are excited to pursue His heart for the greatest city on earth in the center of the city in this great neighborhood of Humble Park. Stay tuned. See you guys this morning. Um, obviously, I want to say thank you to Bam for allowing me to share the message with you this morning. Um, and I wanted to say to you guys, first up, you can relax. I'm not going to talk about money. <laughs> not today. Usually the only time I'm up here is when we're in the middle of a financial crisis. And I'm happy to say that God has blessed us, blessed us beyond expectations. One of his purposes in getting us towards financial health is that we can now start to look outwards, to focus on the needs of our community. Bam has been speaking in the last few weeks about a time of preparation. Uh, and that's what we see um, in today's passage. It's a transition point in Luke. Je- uh, Jesus is beginning his journey towards Jerusalem. And today is, of course, the first Sunday in Lent. Uh, so we're at a point in our church calendar where we're preparing our hearts and minds and setting our eyes on his death and resurrection. So when I read today's passage in preparation, my first thought was, seriously, you want me to preach on this? This is a message I need to be hearing. I need to hear a sermon on this, not deliver one. So please bear that in mind as I share with you this morning. Um, If you want to find the passage uh, or read with me from the screen, it's Luke 9, starting at verse 51. Um, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he said to his... uh, And then he and his disciples went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but please let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word in all its complexity and simplicity. Thank you that it is as relevant today as it was for the disciples in this passage. Please prepare our hearts to receive your truth, that your spirit will fill this place, and that you will give us ears to hear your word and eyes to see your face. In your name we pray. Amen. So, as you can see, Luke has packed a lot into just a few lines here. And I'm guessing, like you guys... I identify more with the three unnamed disciples at the end of the passage rather than with James and John up at the start. The challenge for me is more often one of hesitation than, than one of wanting to throw a bit of fire and brimstone about. With that in mind, we'll be looking at hesitation, the pitfalls of hesitation, pushing through our hesitation, and the life Jesus welcomes us into when we get beyond our hesitation. The pitfalls, pushing through, and the life beyond hesitation. But first... 
I want to take some time to give you some of the broader context for this passage. Verse 9, uh, the first nine and a half chapters of Luke cover Jesus' early ministry in and around Galilee. And then verse 51, chapter 9 here, marks a pivotal shift. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We're only a third of the way into Luke's gospel, but he shifts our focus, following Jesus' gaze, towards Jerusalem. His teaching in this next section happens on the road or at stops along the way. Our walk of faith can be seen in similar terms as a process of preparation on our way towards Jerusalem, a place that signifies God's presence and is a place of both judgment and salvation. Jesus resolutely set out. That phrase was a Hebrew idiom, resolutely, to set one's face to go somewhere. And Luke's use of it specifically recalls Isaiah 50, verse 7, which says, I have set my face like flint. The context in Isaiah is of the servant, who will be put to shame by his accusers and then vindicated. Obviously, the servant figure in that section of Isaiah refers specifically to Jesus. The same phrase comes up in Jeremiah 21, verse 10, I have determined, that's the same phrase, determined to do this city harm. In this context, God's patience over hundreds of years is finally running out. He is shaking his people awake by giving Jerusalem and its people over to Babylon. It's judgment. Ezekiel uses the same phrase three times in quick succession. Judgment and separation from God are coming. What's the purpose of this judgment? Ezekiel 15 verse 7, And when I set my face against them, then you will know I am the Lord. The goal is to bring Israel back to him. Israel has wandered away from God. They do not know his purpose. They do not see his face. God is using judgment to bring his people back to him. The purpose of Jesus' journey is to bring them to Jerusalem, to the cross, where they will see God's love demonstrated in sacrifice. He's putting himself in the context of the Old Testament prophets using that phrase. Later in Luke 13, 33, he says, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. The judgment he references, though, will fall on him this time, not immediately on the people. Up until this point, Jesus' ministry has been in and around Galilee, with his focus on Jerusalem. The next ten chapters of Luke, he's preaching through Samaria and Perea. Perea is the region on the eastern side of the Jordan. So, Samaria. Samaria occupied an area between Judea and Jerusalem to the south, between Judea and Jerusalem to the south, and Galilee to the north, and it stretched from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. So Jews from Galilee had to travel through Samaria to get to Jerusalem on their yearly pilgrimage, or they had to go the long way around, cross over River Jordan, go down on the eastern side. And as you know, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as apostates. The feelings were mutual. The Samaritans believed God should be worshipped at the top of Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Zion. Now, I love a historical digression, so you're going to get one. In the few hundred years before this, Jewish historian Josephus records the Samaritans stealing land, kidnapping Jews as slaves, desecrating the Hebrew temple with dead bodies, pretending to be Jewish themselves, or not Jewish, according to whichever Greek general was attacking at the time. In fact, they renamed their own holy place on Mount Gerizim the Temple of Jupiter Hellenius, while the Jewish temple was being plundered by the Greeks in 168 BC. In return, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan sanctuary on top of Mount Gerizim 50 years later. And then closer to Jesus' time, there were reports of 
Samaritans lying in wait to attack Jews from Galilee on that journey to Jerusalem, murders along the road, or of Roman soldiers being paid to harass pilgrims. A common Jewish proverb at the time said, a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than pig's flesh. So all that's in the mind of the disciples as they approach this Samaritan village. Jesus tells them to expect resistance, but their hearts need to be in the right place if they're going to stay fixed on their course. Like Jesus, their faces set like flint. The passage shows us two responses to the challenge of following Jesus. James and John personify the first. Verse 52, And he sent his messengers on ahead, who went into the village to get things ready for him. The people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Fire from heaven. Sons of thunder, right? Those Samaritans don't like us. Well, let's smite them with a bit of holy fire, can we? So earlier in the chapter, these two guys are on top of the mountain witnessing the transfiguration. So perhaps they can be forgiven for being a little pumped up. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, set like flint, so it's judgment time. The disciples have their Old Testament mindset. They've seen Moses and Elijah preparing Jesus for this journey. They thought the time for slaying Israel, Israel's enemies, had finally come. Makes sense to start with the Samaritans on the doorstep. Next stop, the Roman Empire. They'd forgotten the judgment spoken of in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah was aimed at Israel. What Jesus tries to teach them during this journey is to reorder their priorities. The master becomes the servant. The outcasts are welcomed in. The religious elite are shown to be hypocrites. In the verses immediately preceding today's passage, Jesus has already had to break up an argument between them about who will be the greatest. Meanwhile, those Samaritans, they were just going about their lives, resenting the Jews, as usual. How were they to know it was God's chosen one wanting food and shelter? James and John are impatient. No hesitation, no preparation. Shoot first, ask questions later. The obstacles to the kingdom they see are all out there. It's those people over there. Fix them. Part of Jesus' reordered priorities is that he wants us to examine our own hearts and minds before we are ready to serve others. Deal with the plank in your own eye first. Stop arguing about who's the greatest. There's a lesson here in how we conduct ourselves with non-Christians. Jesus' attitude is non-confrontational. He saves his rebukes for the disciples who want to harness God's power for retribution. He saves his insults for the Pharisees who pretend on purity on the outside and lead people astray. He saves his whip, which he only uses once for the cheats who turn his father's house into a den of thieves. His interactions with people who don't agree with him are the model we should adopt. Walking with Jesus gives us an authenticity that goes beyond words and well-considered arguments. We must call out injustice when we see it, but we have no right as Christians to impose and enforce our worldview on non-believers. And when we get our heads around that, I think it helps take the confrontational aspect out of any discussion we have with a friend or colleague who feels judged by our faith. There's no judgment in letting your actions do the talking. This is Jesus' upside-down kingdom, and the expectations are very different for those who claim to follow him than for those who have not yet heard his name. So if you know me at all, then you'll know that impulsiveness is not one of my many crimes. I learned very early on that I hated the discomfort of not feeling in control. In preparing this message, I sat for a long time, 
trying to think of anything bold or courageous or impulsive in my past. And it was really difficult. Asking a girl out on a date when I was 15. Brutal. Horrible. I have never recovered. I taught myself, wait, plan, prevaricate, rather than step into the unknown. Those can be synonyms for hesitation. Even when I moved here from the UK, one rare occasion of an apparently bold and courageous step, God prepared the way for me. From conversations I'd had with friends and strangers that prepared me for the first conversations I shared with Leslie, from closing door after door when I was looking for another job in the UK, to my boss, whose selfish instincts worked to my advantage when he told them to get a freelancer in to replace me who they could then fire if I wanted to come back after six months. So when I made that step, it didn't seem impetuous, but neither was there any hesitancy. It was just right. On the other hand, sometimes God will ask us to take a step without knowing where our foot is going to land. And that's where the challenge is in hesitation. That's the second response in this passage where we are challenged to walk with Jesus. So, that was my introduction. It's okay, I'm halfway through. So... Here we are, the pitfalls of hesitation. I'm going to stick with Leslie for this analogy because it's fun to make her feel uncomfortable in a public setting, which she loves. After we'd met in New York, that first weekend I was back home in the UK, she called me on the phone, like people used to do, and the thought flashed through my mind, quite literally, my life might change if I answer this call. I did answer, my life did change, for the better. But if I'd hesitated... What if I'd hesitated? What if I hadn't answered? Well, knowing Leslie, as many of you do, she would have just called again. (laughs) And maybe a third time before giving up on that jerk from the UK. Well, God doesn't give up. But how much easier is it for us not to answer the call the second time around? And the third time? Easier still. Hesitation is the first step in zoning God out of our lives. This is something Bam was saying when we were talking the other day. When God asks something of you, he would much rather hear you say no than for you to say nothing at all. A yes would be ideal for sure, but if you say no, at least you're acknowledging him. There's dialogue. If you hesitate, prevaricate and ignore, you're putting God at arm's length. You're giving yourself time and space in which the world will crowd in, the cares of the world will crowd in and occupy you. And what happens when we keep hesitating? We justify our inaction. I'm too busy. I'm too stressed. We fill up our lives with things that will not fulfill or sustain us. The longer we ignore God's call or fail to act, the harder it becomes to hear his voice. Our Christian walk will become passive. Our faith will be insular and inward-looking. Worse still, James 2 verse 7, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We will be failing ourselves and, God, uh, and those God is calling us to serve. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. How often do we say that? We are God's hands and feet in this life, and it's through us that his will on earth is done. These are the pitfalls of hesitation, that we tune God out. God will keep asking us, and eventually he may have to resort to more dramatic measures to get our attention. I answered Leslie's phone call, I did a lot of praying and seeking God's will, and I wound up here with you guys. But hesitation is something I have to work against, and the disciples found there are continual bumps along the road, even after successes. So, 
pushing through our hesitation. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We have three unnamed would-be followers of Jesus. They come with conditions. Jesus gets to the nub of each person's hesitation. You need to give up your comforts. You need to give up your obligations. You need to give up your family. Give up your family. That seems pretty harsh. That was my first reaction. But is it? This is the king of kings. Get over yourself. I mean, you're not Abraham. You don't negotiate with God. You don't ask Jesus to hang on. Wait a minute. I've got a toasty going on the griddle. My child's nose needs a wipe. I've got to bury my dad. I mean, nothing is more important. We have a pecking order of urgency. Burnt toast down here. Uncontrolled boogers kind of here. Burying dad up here. But any call from Jesus supersedes everything. Hesitation shows a lack of trust. If we really believed God has our best interests at heart, we know he'd take care of it, from burnt toast to buried relatives to everything in between. If our life is with him, we must be ready when called on to discard our comforts, our social status, even our careers. He asks a lot, but isn't that appropriate, given it's the opportunity to walk with the creator? And even more so, when we consider what he was walking into on our behalf. Now looking closer, Jesus tailors his response according to each individual. He knows the roadblocks in every believer's heart. The end result of his call on us is the same. It's the objective, Jerusalem, forgiveness, sacrifice, salvation. But the specifics, the tactics, if you like, that will get us there are unique to each of us. This is the journey. And he walks it with us, asking nothing that he hasn't already done himself. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He walks through the shame of asking unclean Samaritans for a bed and then is doubly insulted when they turn him away. Leave my family? Luke 8, 21, Jesus doesn't prioritize his family when they're waiting outside for him over the believers he's teaching. My mother and brothers, he says, are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He doesn't ask everyone to sell all their belongings and give the proceeds to the poor. He only asks if that's an insurmountable obstacle to following him. He asks everyone else to be ready for that, should he ask. The first disciples left their boats and nets to follow him. He doesn't ask every follower to quit their job, only those for whom he has a different task. For some followers in Luke, their sacrifice is not to be in Jesus' presence. Chapter 939 that Bam spoke on last week. The man whom Jesus released from the demons on the eastern side of Galilee begged to go with him. Return home, Jesus told him. Tell how much God has done for you. Just like the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus was a foreigner to them. One thing Jesus couldn't give up was his identity as a Jew, so they were actually better witnesses in their community of his good news. His demands on your life will be pointed and focused on the roadblocks. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, Luke 5.31. To paraphrase that, it's not the healthy parts of your heart that God needs to work on, but the unhealthy parts. Our lives are messy. We have moments of grace and self-sacrifice. 
we have moments of sin and shame. He will shine his light on the parts of ourselves we would rather hide, the places in our hearts of greatest resistance. And that's where his work is done. Also, brief sidebar. If that guy's father had already died, he would have been occupied with a funeral, which was a long and complicated process. He would not have been out walking along the road. So it's likely he was asking if he could wait until his father had died. But the point remains clear. Jesus is not going to wait. He has to get to Jerusalem. We need to be on the road, learning at the feet of the Savior. Cheese toasty, runny nose, dead relative. Nothing should interfere with following Jesus. And we know from Luke's careful writing of his gospel, we are all a work in progress. I mentioned the disciples. Right before this passage, they're arguing about which of them would be the greatest. That's in Luke 9.46. This is Luke 22.24. During the Last Supper, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Until we understand and put it into action, his work doesn't stop. Where are the places of greatest resistance in your heart? We have to risk asking that question. It takes self-examination and it takes time because we bury that stuff deep. And how do we overcome our hesitation? Let's think about the fruits of holding back, of driving with our foot on the brakes. One of the most famous examples of hesitation in literature is Hamlet. I've read the cliff notes for you. His father, the king, is killed by his uncle who snatches the throne. Hamlet spends most of the five-act, five-hour play wringing his hands, plotting, convincing, reconvincing himself, wrestling with self-doubt, being mean to his mum, being super mean to his girlfriend. It's only when his uncle tries to kill him that he finally decides to act. By then it's too late. Everyone's plans go wrong. Hamlet dies. His mum, the queen, dies. His uncle dies. The king dies. Hamlet's girlfriend, her brother, her dad. It's a tragedy. You know, spoiler alert, sorry, it's too late. When we hesitate, we suffer, we miss out. Worse still, other people suffer and miss out too. We miss the opportunity to share his love. Other people miss the opportunity to receive his love. Instead of being like Hamlet, consider being like Oreo. He's our dog. He sleeps a lot. He's annoying. He's got a weak bladder when he gets excited. Don't be like that, but everything he wants he goes for. If he doesn't get it, he looks at Leslie with his big, wet, doleful eyes, or he rings this little bell that I stupidly put by the back door. Ding, ding, ding. I want to go out. Ding, ding, ding. I want to harass the neighbors. Ding, ding, ding. I want to turn the yard into my toilet. No hesitation. We trained him a little. We can barely train our children, and they understand consequences. What we have gotten Oreo to do is wait. I can put a treat on the floor and say wait and he'll hold his ground but his eyes are on it until that food is eaten he will not allow himself to get distracted until that treat is in his mouth that waiting is obviously very different from hesitation hesitation you have the ability and permission to do something and you hold back Oreo sets his face like flint Jesus doesn't take a straight line from Galilee to Jerusalem there are a lot of lessons being taught along the way. The disciples are carrying a lot of disposable baggage. Pride, greed, jealousy. Another digression. Why flint? Why not rock or iron? Why is flint the chosen metaphor? Well, flint, of course, is not passive. It's not like ordinary stone or metal. If you hit it, 
If you try and knock it off course, sparks will fly. Flint can start a fire. When you set your face like flint, you are going to react when something, when, it, when you come up against something that will try and deter you from your goal. If you are walking with a servant's heart, rather than in the spirit of James and John, that fire will cleanse, it will not destroy. But if you're waiting on God, then wait with purpose. Resist being deflected. Always be asking him, what's next? That's how we deal with hesitancy. I never thought Oreo would teach me a lesson beyond don't get a dog with long ears that drag in the dirt. But there it is. It's okay to wait. We don't always get our answer straight away. In that waiting, wait with purpose. Wait with urgency. Asking. Seeking. Why do we hold back from the good things God wants for us? The passage answers this pretty clearly. The comforts and obligations of life. Those are the things that get in the way. So, when we remove our hesitation, part three, when we offer up every comfort and security to him, what kind of life does he offer? Imagine if you weren't anxious about other people's opinions. Imagine if you didn't have to be the funniest person in the room or the smartest. Imagine if you were okay saying something honest that you know your friend doesn't want to hear but needs to. Imagine celebrating with your kid for trying rather than for succeeding. Saying yes to Jesus doesn't automatically mean you're saying no to everything and everyone else. Rather, you're saying no to putting them on the pedestal where Jesus should be. Don't allow them to distract you from him. If you're not anxious about what other people think, you spend less time trying to impress them and more time listening. Fixing our priorities, putting Jesus first, makes us better friends, better colleagues, better parents. Verse 62, Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I remember as a kid watching a TV program about an agricultural show. They had an event where a bunch of farmers had a competition. Who could plow the straightest furrow? It seemed like a pretty lame thing to have a competition over, but you know, it was the 70s, so what are you going to do? Why would plowing a straight furrow be so important? So think about plowing a field. The first furrow, the first row, is the line along which all the other rows follow. If it's wonky, everything that follows will be off. There'll be an ever-growing percentage of unworked land. If you're a subsistence farmer, you can't let anything go to waste. These farmers in the show, they said, and they had tractors, mind you, it wasn't oxen pulling a plow. They said the best way to do it was to pick a point in the distance and aim straight for it without looking back, without deviation. Looking back, that was also a loaded phrase for Jesus' followers. It carried echoes of Lot's wife looking back at Sodom, of Israel looking back at Egypt after their liberation, having second thoughts about leaving a life of slavery. The life he calls us into is total. It's not just for Sundays, not just for our private lives, but it's one of liberation through sacrifice. Allow him to work on the obstacles in your heart. Seek his will, his gifts. He wants to bless you and to bless others through you. Walking with Jesus means walking to the cross. Seeing what he gave up and endured for us should eliminate any hesitation in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that everything is possible in your love. 
please work on our hesitancy. Work on our desire to hear your voice and to answer your call on our lives. We don't know how those three would-be disciples answered you, but we pray for the opportunity to answer yes in your love when you ask. Amen.